Well, good morning, everyone. How y'all doing? Good? Cool. I never ask that. I mean, <laughs> it's my first time greeting you. We are continuing our Holy Spirit series this morning and looking at... Um, it's, it's a bit of a continuation. It's a bit of a part two from a couple weeks ago. If you remember, we looked at how the Spirit speaks, or just the reality, really, that the Spirit does speak. And this is something that we see very evidently in Scripture. If we look at uh, John chapter 16, Jalise, if you want to put the first slide up there, just by way of example, look at what Jesus says in John 16. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. This is just one of many passages that speak to the reality that the Spirit speaks. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the Spirit speaks to and through us. The Spirit speaks at any season, in any season, but it's, the Spirit specifically speaks in times of difficulty. The Spirit speaks courage into us and confidence. The Spirit speaks comfort to and through us. The Spirit speaks the truths of Jesus to us. The Spirit speaks. And as Pastor Clay alluded to last week, the Spirit speaks ultimately so that we may experience the glory of God. The Spirit speaks. But how, and this is the question for us this morning, how do we know that it's the Spirit speaking to us? How do we know that it's not just our own consciences speaking to us, that we're not just making it up, or even worse, how do we know that it's not the enemy trying to distract us away from what Jesus is trying to say? How do we know? Well, to focus on these important questions, we're going to look at a passage this morning in 1 John. So if you brought a Bible with you, or if you want to grab one of the Bibles in front of you, you can turn to 1 John, okay? It's uh, just before Revelation, there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to 1st John chapter 3. Now, as you're turning there, just want to mention the context for this letter is that the church that John was writing to, like many of the early Christian churches, was struggling with false teachers, false prophets. So these were individuals that were going door to door, that were entering into the lives of these early Christians, and trying to persuade them away from the teachings of the apostles, away from the true teachings of Jesus, to sort of a, a better or an improved form of Christianity. So they were always teachings that were ever so slightly shifted away from what the apostles' teaching was. And of course, this would be very frustrating for John. As an old housemate, as one of my old housemates once said, something that's very close to the truth is a really good lie. What's really close to the truth is a really good lie. For these new believers, it's very difficult to be able to tell the false prophets from the true ones. They often come off as very devoted very reasonable. They seem to have a good head on their shoulders. They seem to know what they're talking about. It doesn't seem to be that different than what John was teaching us about. It doesn't seem like there's anything wrong. They probably don't realize or think that they're teaching anything wrong, but their teaching isn't of the Spirit. How then are these new believers supposed to know this? How can we tell what is false and what is true? How can we identify the voice of the Spirit versus the voice of something else. Let's see what John says about it. So we're going to start in John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 19, so near to the end. I have to turn the page. Near to the end of the passage. It's a new paragraph, starting at verse 19, and we're going to go into chapter 4, verse 3. Okay? This is the word of the Lord. This is how we know 
says John, that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Dear friends, says John, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, notice, notice if you keep your Bibles open in front of you, notice how John, at the end of that first paragraph, right before chapter 4, ends it with this, and this is how we know. Okay, so that's a, that's a connecting verse. That's a phrase that holds these two chapters together. This is how we know, he says, that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Okay? That is, that's a, a, an important verse that connects everything that John just said to what he's going to say next. Everything that he's just said prior to that verse, to, to know that we belong to the truth, to be at rest in God's presence, to trust that God is greater than our own self-condemnation, to be able to have a confidence before God, to believe in Jesus and to love as he commanded that, all of those things are possible because of the Spirit who dwells within because of the Spirit who now lives within us. Essentially, then, our ability to follow Jesus hangs on this one key truth, that the Spirit of God dwells within us. Because John then says in verse 4, because apparently not everyone was a fan of this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In other words, there's not just the voice within you speaking. There are other voices outside of you. Voices of worldly wisdom, voices of the enemy, voices of people who don't live according to Jesus' way. Voices that are going to challenge that voice within you. But this, he says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Okay, so now we know, right, what those false prophets were trying to teach. Okay, we know now, based on what John's just said, it looks like these door-to-door salesmen, these false prophets, were trying to woo these Christian believers into believing that Jesus wasn't actually human. It's what historians called Gnosticism. These folks were called Gnostics. People who held, and we don't have time to go into everything, but people who, essentially they were people who held that God wouldn't ever do something so beneath him as to become an earthly, human, messy body. That's just not possible. That's just not something that God would do. But this is hugely problematic if, as a Christian apostle and teacher, which is what John was, 
you're trying to teach these early Christians that the Spirit of Jesus Christ can dwell inside you only because Jesus too was human and made a way for that to happen. Think about what falls apart, what all falls apart if Jesus wasn't actually God made flesh. If the Word didn't become flesh and dwell among us, if He wasn't actually human, because if Jesus wasn't human, then A, He wouldn't have been an appropriate sacrifice on our behalf. He wouldn't have been able to identify with us. Two, he couldn't be our high priest then, proclaiming our innocence before God the throne, before God the Father on his throne. He couldn't do that. And three, then he couldn't send out his Holy Spirit to then dwell within us. All those things could not happen if Jesus wasn't God made flesh. So John argues then that Jesus did take on human flesh. That's incredibly important. And the Spirit of Jesus then can't possibly be operating within these false prophets if they don't even believe that it's possible for him to be there. They can't possibly be speaking truth because they're not speaking the truths of the Spirit. They can't be at rest in God's presence. They can't see God as greater than their own hearts. They can't follow his commands and follow Jesus' command to love as he loved because they aren't listening to the right voice. Because according to John, in order to hear the right voice, we need to believe that that voice would actually want to dwell inside of us. So Jesus' incarnation, which I know is kind of a Christianese term, but it's a really important term for us, his incarnation, his becoming human, is hugely significant when we're talking about how the Spirit speaks. Because if Jesus wasn't human, it all falls apart. If his body didn't matter, why would the Spirit want anything to do with our bodies? Why would the Spirit even think about dwelling within us? But if the Spirit is within us and desiring to speak to and through us, and he's going to use our bodies to do that. And that involves not just our minds, which we often gravitate towards, but involves our emotions, our gut impulses, our personalities, the whole package, everything together. Because the body is now, because of Jesus, a holistic, holy housing for the Holy Spirit. For his voice to reverberate within. As one pastor put it, you can't get any closer than in. You just can't. This is so foundational for us. We have to grasp this. It's the only reason I'm spending this much time on it. We have to understand how important this is. The Spirit dwells within. So with that truth in mind, knowing that the Spirit of God dwells within us because of the person of Jesus Christ, how then can we do as John has asked us to do and test the spirits or the voices around us to ensure that we are in fact listening primarily to the voice of the Spirit. As Isaac Newton's third law says, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And the same can kind of be true for when we're talking about listening to the voices around us and testing the spirits. John's already assured us that the one who is in us is greater than the one who's in the world. So we're not talking about two equal powers here. But the stronger the voice within us grows, the stronger the voices around us are going to seek to be. So we need to discipline ourselves to be able to learn how to distinguish between them. When am I hearing the voice within me that's coming from God? When am I listening to a voice around me that's seeking to dissuade me elsewise? And to start off, 
John gives us some helpful markers for this back in chapter 3. So if you look back at those verses, 19 through 24, there's a few things that we can identify there as helpful standards or questions to ask when we're discerning if and when it is the Spirit speaking to us. So anytime that you're seeking God's voice for a critical decision that needs to be made, if you're thinking of if you've got a plan that you need to run by him, a request, you desire to have some sense of direction, anytime you're looking for guidance, these are helpful questions that you can turn to based on John's words that indicate whether or not the Spirit is present. Again, because all those things that he mentioned hang on that one verse, remember? It's because we know these things because the Spirit is within us. And so if the Spirit is present, those things will be there. So these are the five things that we can... We can Think about when we're discerning based on God's words. One, does it create a sense of peace? Does it create a sense of rest or peace? When you are in the midst of discerning something and you're asking for the Spirit's voice, do you sense peace? Do you sense rest? Second, is it convicting rather than condemning? John tells us that the Spirit doesn't condemn us. That's not what the Spirit does. The Spirit convicts us for sure. But the Spirit is always seeking to make us better disciples of Jesus Christ, to draw us deeper into being disciples of Jesus Christ, not to condemn us, not to make us feel miserable about ourselves. So that's a good question to be asking. Is it convicting rather than condemning? Does it inspire confidence within us to seek God's help? We, taught, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that this, this is something the Spirit does. The Spirit inspires confidence within us. Is there a confidence to come before God, to request his aid, and to hear from him. Fourth, does it line up with his commands? Jesus, or John said that this is something the Spirit guides us into. It, it guides us into following Jesus' commands and pleasing him. Does it line up with Scripture? And lastly, of course, is it loving? Does it draw us into loving Jesus more and loving others more? A rubric like this can be really helpful for us in any time we're in seasons of discernment. We can go through these five things. Of course, there are more, but these are just a few things that John mentions, I think, that we can grasp onto that allow us in seasons of discernment to, to decide whether or not the voice that we're hearing is the voice of the Holy Spirit, because these are indicators of that Spirit. It's helpful to have steps. It's helpful to have, you know, a bit of a formula or an outline. And I outline these simply because at a bare minimum, they can be very helpful. And yet, even with these, I think it's really important for us to take it even further, to go further than this, because we can't depend on a set of questions. To grow in how we listen to the Spirit, we need to train ourselves to listen well. Because the reality is that no matter how many tools we have for discernment, we can't control the Spirit. As Liz was sharing with the kids, the Spirit's like the wind. It blows and goes wherever it pleases. We can't always tell where he's coming from or where he's going. The Spirit isn't just like a recipe where you can you know, figure out exactly what you need to do and then you come out with the perfect muffins all the time. That's not how he works. He's a divine person with whom we need to get to know and grow in relationship with. And like anything, like any relationship, this takes time and intentionality. And I know we never like to hear that, but we hear it all the time, and yet we, never st we still never do it. It takes time and intentionality to get to know how the Spirit moves and how the Spirit speaks. So this is where I want to just offer, I want to get super practical here and just offer two very helpful steps that I think 
can help us to hear the Spirit's voice. In addition to these five questions, okay? But these two steps will help us to discern these questions a little bit easier. And I believe these are absolutely essential to maturing our listening ears. The first is this. Again, it might be obvious, but folks, we have to slow down. I see some of you grinning. (laughs) We have to slow down. I will never hear the voice of the Spirit if I'm just bustling around, running from task to task, hurtling through life as if I'm permanently in a bouncy cancel. Like, that's just, that sounds terrible. (laughs) But that would be terrible to be permanently in a bouncy castle. But that's somehow how we live our lives. Just bouncing around from thing to thing, hurtling from task to task, thinking that that's what's fulfilling us. But that's actually when we feel most distant from God. We will never be able to discern through those five questions that we looked at if we're not actually stopping to think about them. We have to slow our lives down. Clay said it last week that the early church knew the importance of contemplation, of slowing down, of of deepening themselves in the presence of God, of dwelling in the presence of God. And that's something that the modern church has largely forgotten about. Our inclination otherwise, says one scholar, is often, instead of waiting for God patiently, our inclination is to usually impatiently assume one of two things because, you know, we're we're on a time frame and we need to hear from Jesus now. So we either assume or suppose that the Spirit always guides us by the most reasonable response, you know, by sanctified common sense, or to suppose that his guidance is always sudden or extraordinary, right? It comes out of nowhere. You never know where it's going to come from. It's going to be big and it's going to be bold. But neither of these inclinations actually foster a relationship with the Holy Spirit. The first is, frankly, just plain laziness and presumptuous and a little bit arrogant, as if our own common sense is the best guide. That's problematic because that can very easily lead to a form of manipulation and, frankly, just running on our own agendas. When we claim that God has guided us a certain way, but we actually haven't taken the time to listen. We've just assumed that whatever our own common sense tells us is what he's saying. And the second inclination is like treating the Spirit like he's some divine circus act, always making his presence known in super obvious ways, popping out of nowhere, dramatic entrances, fireworks. That's not helpful either. Certainly the Spirit can do that at times, but we cannot assume how the Spirit works. We cannot assume or seek to control how the Spirit works. Imagine doing that to a person (laughs) that you barely know, just assuming that you know how they speak, what their personality is, how they work. That's not fair. You can't assume those things. Why would the Spirit ever allow us to do that to Him? Why would the Spirit ever want us to do that to Him? We have to get to know Him. And we can only deepen our understanding of him if we actually take the time to listen for him. To do this, we have to start by slowing down, taking the time to set aside the agenda, to create moments in our days to just sit, to dwell, to rest in his presence. And it's amazing when we will hear his voice. Last week, Danny and I were up near Whistler. We were doing a hike. And on the way back, we stopped in at Shannon Falls. I don't know if you've ever been to Shannon Falls. It's just this beautiful site <laughs> on the way back, close to, close to Squamish. 
But it was amazing. It was amazing, astounding to me. How many people walk up to this, you know, this little balcony where you can look over this 1,100-foot natural wonder, this beautiful waterfall. How many people walk up to that, immediately turn around with their friends, take their phone out, snap the perfect photo, and then walk away? Have you noticed that? It's incredible. They didn't even look at it. <laughs> As if their phone is a better option for looking. Like, that's crazy. It blew my mind. This, dare I say, is, is often what we do with God, it feels. You know, we snap our photo, read our devotion, say our prayer, buy the t-shirt, and move on. You know, we've done our God stamp for the day, and now I can go on with my own thing. More, I, I know it sounds simple, but it's one of the hardest things in this day and age for us to do. It's to slow down. Because everything else around us, the other voices around us, are telling us that we need to be productive. We need to be efficient. We need to get things done. We need to go from task to task. It's a value in our society to be busy. It's something to be proud about, how busy we are, how many things our kids are doing, how many things we're involved in. We have to slow down. More experiences and absorbing more information from different things isn't going to make us more wise. Doing more things and checking off our task list isn't going to give us spiritual wisdom. Slowing down, having a routine of prayer and contemplation in the Spirit allows us to learn the rhythms of His voice. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want to hear the voice of Jesus? Because more often than not, the Spirit of Jesus Christ is actually trying to teach us just one thing at a time. Not giving us a whole wealth of experiences and information all at the same time. It's just usually, that's not how we grow, right? It's usually just one, one thing at a time. We have to learn how to slow down. Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Are we listening? How well do we listen to the voice of Jesus? Have we found rest in his spirit and taken the time to enter into his presence? Because it's only once we slow down that we can actually do step two. And this goes back to that idea of being whole persons in Christ. Two is this. We need to listen for the spirit with both heart and mind. And to listen to the Spirit with both heart and mind. Let me explain that. Gordon Smith, um, he's a scholar that I'll actually refer to a little bit later. Uh, he's a scholar that's done a lot of work on discernment. And he says, he, he makes the note that as children of the Enlightenment, so, you know, individuals who have culturally come out of the Enlightenment, out of the age of reason and science, that we've been taught, really, to only focus on the mind rather than on the emotions. Because, of course, you know, emotions and feelings get in the way of true learning. Right? Feelings are messy. They're unreliable. But imagine, imagine if I was trying to stand here and teach you about Jesus without actually loving him. I could say really important things, really helpful things, but does it mean anything if I don't actually love him? Imagine sitting in a history class, listening to a history teacher 
teach on material that they don't really care about, that they evidently don't enjoy teaching. See, what makes a, a history teacher a good teacher is when they want their students not simply to memorize information and dates and to cram as much data into their brains as they can, but to savor the material, to patiently and openly digest the material and to question what it means for them, to question why these things happen, where it's going, what it means for us, to work with the material, to love the material. As one famous professor once put it, intellect works in concert with feeling. This guy's a teacher, right? Intellect works in concert with feeling. So if I hope to open my student's mind, I must open their emotions as well. Mind and heart working together. This is how the Spirit seeks to operate within us. So that whole idea of glorified common sense or sanctified common sense doesn't really work. The whole idea of only catering to our emotions and being spectacular and doing amazing things that wow us, that doesn't make sense. The Spirit works with both heart and mind. He is our greatest teacher, trying to speak to us using both of our logic and our emotions. There's a story that I'd love to share with you this morning that I think exemplifies this really well. It's the story of a man named Paul Cowley. He lives in London, England, and he met God through the Alpha Course. And so that was the avenue through which I, I heard this story as well. He shares how growing up he had a really heavy relationship with both his mom and his dad, but specifically with his dad, because his dad was argumentative, always fighting, drinking, a heavy drinker, um, and often not home because he was off somewhere having an affair. Really awful stuff. Awful, awful stuff. But when Paul became a Christian, he wanted to have a relationship with his dad. He wanted his dad back in his life. And so Paul tracked him down, and in tracking him down, you know, he found him living alone somewhere in a flat. And he hoped that maybe, perhaps, his dad had changed, just as he had. But as it turned out, he hadn't. He was exactly as Paul remembered him. Argumentative, vulgar, crude, sarcastic, drinking even more than he used to. Nothing had changed. Either way, Paul, in speaking with his wife, they decided to invite his dad out to come visit them in London and to stay at their home. And every time he did, Paul would go and meet him at the train station. And every time he met him at the train station, his dad was always whining or complaining or grumbling about something. And oftentimes it happened to be about money. That was a big thing that his dad complained about. Well, one visit, when his dad came to stay, he became suddenly incredibly ill and actually had to be hospitalized. And so they, he ended up staying with Paul's family for about a week, which was apparently quite the experience. But after that week, when Paul took him back to the train station to go home to Manchester, Paul put him on the train, he sat him down in his seat, and then suddenly out of nowhere, right in the middle of the carriage, Paul had this overwhelming sense of love for his dad. And he almost started to cry right there in the middle of the carriage. He didn't know where it came from, it just hit him suddenly, this overwhelming sense of love for his dad. He looked at him, and he just felt sad for him. And sad that he was never able to have a relationship with him. And suddenly in Paul's mind came the idea to upgrade his dad's ticket to first class. And so he bought a very expensive 
first-class ticket for his dad. And he ushered him into the first-class carriage. And he sat him down. And he kissed his head. And he said farewell. His wife then, who was outside standing on the platform with him when he came out, as the engine started up, asked him what had come over him. And he said, I don't know. I just wanted to make my dad happy. And as the train was about to go, as they stood there, he looked at his dad through the window, and he saw his dad take his hat off, set it on the table in front of him, press the button to recline his chair, take out the newspaper, hold it out, the waitress comes, brings him some food and a drink. And as he did this, he turned to look out the window at his son. And what he did, when he did, he had the biggest smile on his face. Paul says it was as if all birthdays and Christmases had just rolled together in one, and his dad was just beaming. And as it turns out, that was the last time that Paul ever saw his dad. Because three weeks later, his dad died of a massive heart attack, alone in his flat. And ever since then, Paul's wondered, was that just my own head making it up? Or was that the Spirit speaking to me? And he knows the answer to that question. Because ever since that moment, Paul can identify, and he can attest to this, that he has an incredible peace about all those years, those early years of arguing and fighting and drinking, just an incredible peace about him. And the only image he now has of his father is of his face in the window, smiling as the train rolled away. See, when you, I use that story because when you think about it, all of those elements that we've talked about are there, right? All those things. It brought him a peace of mind. It convicted him. It wasn't condemning. It followed, of course, commands in Scripture. It was incredibly loving. It inspired confidence within him to do something totally random and sporadic. And of course, those things could also only have been there if Paul had taken the time, which he did, to just pause, to think about what was happening, what the Spirit might be saying, to pay attention to both his heart and his mind, which were evidently both at play, and to then act on it. The voice of the Spirit is never just purely logical. He'll use our emotions as well. And He will always lead us to loving Jesus and loving others more. If, this, if the voice that we're hearing is not doing that, if it's not inspiring us to love Jesus and to love others more, then it's just not the Spirit. And you know, I think many of the failures throughout history actually boiled down to this one issue. Whether it's human pride or arrogance or impatience most of the time, we often think that we can just figure it out on our own without actually taking the time to listen to the Spirit's voice. How many things go completely off rail when we're not listening to the right voice? How much damage can happen 
when it's not the Spirit's voice that we're actually listening to? What voices might be whispering into the ears of some of our current world leaders? Into the ears of those who seem to value control over anything else at the expense of even human life? What false spirits are trying to persuade their hearts and their minds? I know that's an extreme example, but again, think about the damage that can be done when we're listening to the wrong voice. As followers of the incarnated Jesus Christ, we are stewards of his Holy Spirit who lives within us. And so we are tasked with listening for that voice, for listening for the voice of love to lead us into the truth. So test the voices, says John. Carefully weigh everything that you hear. Examine what you're hearing and ask yourself, does it create a sense of rest or peace? Is it convicting rather than condemning? Does it spur me on to be a disciple of Jesus rather than making me feel miserable? Does it inspire confidence within me? Does it line up with Scripture? Is it loving? And slow down. Pray in the Spirit with both heart and mind. Let him speak to you as a whole person. Listen as best as you can. And trust in his ability to guide you more than your ability to follow. When we're doing those things, we can trust in his ability to guide us more than our ability to follow. Because he will guide you. He will. Even if it doesn't always make sense. Let's pray. Living God, we pray simply this morning that you would inspire our hearts and our minds to slow down, to rest to seek your peace, to listen for you with both our mind and our emotions, to look for you at work, and to trust, Lord, that your Spirit does speak to us. Give us hearts that are open and ears to hear you. Whatever we might be discerning through at this time, Lord, I pray that there would be no fear, but that your spirit within us would inspire only confidence and comfort. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Please stand. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.